Did you know that birds don't actually pee? That I did not know. <coughs> That's a fact that would have blown my mind last night. God damn it. <laughs> it was on one of the lists I was looking at, too, of, like, weird facts. Is that why all birds poop is so fucking runny? Yep. So geese don't pee or poop while they fly. They don't? Nope. Hmm. That's why wherever you see them land is always covered in shit. Shit. Because they don't actually defecate in the air. Oh. Probably has something to do with the V formation, so maybe... Splashback. Yeah. (laughs) There's a good evolutionary trick of keeping friends. Yeah. Not shitting in their faces as they go by you. Or as you one of them. (laughs) All right, you ready? Yes. Let's get the show on the road. Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And this is the last podcast for International Women's Month. Yes, it is. Which is our third in the series, uh, because we were a little bit late on the jump starting off. But I think we've done our our sisterhood proud in the meantime. Covered a lot of ground here. We have. We have a blog going up with other women in music. Yep. Uh, We'll have a blog going up at the end of the month. I don't know what it is. It's about. I'll figure it out. Yeah. Odds are it'll be lady related as well. Yeah. <laughs> I have had on my list of things to do um, old advice given to women. Like, oh. you know, those old ads of like, greet your husband at the door with a martini and a four course meal on the dinner table for him. Douche with Lysol. And douche with Lysol. So I think it's time to come around to that yeah. topic and yeah, hit that on the blog. So can you believe they used to do this? <laughs> douche with Lysol. Lysol started out as a douche, people. Yeah. Um, clearly invented by a man, because no woman would ever create that chemical property and stick it up her hoo-ha and think it was a good plan. Uh, I, I don't know how anybody thought that was a good plan, but hey. It was the 50s. It was a wild time. It was. <laughs> I love how that's just used to describe most decades before the 80s. The 70s, it was a wild time. Yeah. The 60s, it was a trippy time. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> So for today's episode, we're going to round out this women in uh, pop culture movements with my story. And then Andy's going to take us off on a bit of a tangent and talk something that's near and dear and hated by every woman. Um, So make your guesses now out loud. And then when you get to the story, you'll either be right or wrong and you'll have that vindication. Yeah. I'm pretty sure every woman listening knows exactly what it is with that description. Probably, yeah. Yeah. So we didn't leave a lot on the table in terms of uh, what to talk about in terms of women in pop culture. So I'm going to start off just to finish us out in that round and then hand off to Andy. But when I was looking for a topic to do, I had assumed Andy would do literature. I was going to do it. And then I just ended up falling down a rabbit hole. The same rabbit hole two ways. So I was like, this obviously is meant to be. Yes. So uh, women in literature will come back to next year, I guess, at some point. Or some point the next year. In the next year. Uh, So my rabbit hole and my topic for this week is pro-women cultural movements. So you had talked music uh, in our first episode for this month of womenness. And that led me to the idea of Lilith Fair. Oh, Lilith Fair. As the 90s was such a fantastic time for exactly. women in music. Exactly. It's a good place to start, so that's kind of where I, I dove in on this. Um, 
And like you said, 90s women's music is seminal to us. And yeah, it's huge. So it makes sense. It's a good kind of segue into these pop culture movements for women. Probably as no surprise, the first Lilith Fair was a response to the male-dominated music industry. Canadian singer Sarah McLaughlin, yes, she of the sad CSPA oh my commercials. And the- I love the angel. Yep, exactly. Also touted out at every single Canadian event where music is required to sing that song. Ugh. Like, side note, the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics in Vancouver must have been the most depressing. That's what I'm saying. Winter Olympics opening of the history of the Olympics. Yeah. Because she got trotted out to sing that. Katie Lang was... Singing Hallelujah? Yeah. It was a real downer of a... With the exception of the guy who did beat poetry and the indigenous dancers, that was the most upbeat shit that happened. Yeah. Every so often, like, they'll be scrambling for uh, an act for Canada Day on the hill, the show up there. And they have, like, Sarah on speed dial and she'll come in and fill a gap. Like, she hasn't done anything recently, but they're like, shit, we can't She's get hosting... anyone good. We She's have to come. the judos this year. She hasn't done anything. Well, that's, yeah. Anyway. So Sarah McLaughlin is looking around and is frustrated that concert promoters and radios are refusing to feature two female-led acts back-to-back. And so to prove them wrong and that they were dumb, she organized a tour headlined by herself and Paula Cole. And one performance in 1996 also featured Lisa Loeb and Michelle McAdery. And that performance with the four of them was advertised as Lilith Fair. Riding on the success of that experience, McLaughlin founded the Lilith Fair Tour. And the name, by the way, comes from the story from Jewish tradition that Lilith was actually Adam's first wife and was created from the same clay as Adam, whereas Eve was created from his rib. But she left him when she refused to be subservient to him, which in true 90s fashion, I have to say, you go, girl. Yeah. The 1997 tour, so the first one, grossed $16 million that year, making it the top touring festival. It was primarily a U.S. summer tour with some stops in Canada. And the original run of the Lilith's Fair only lasted for three years, but during those three years, the acts that performed were huge. So headliners included Sarah McLaughlin, obviously, Cheryl Crow, Tracy Chapman, Jewel, Paula Cole, Fiona Apple, The Cardigans, Lisa Loeb, The Indigo Girls, India Ari, Natalie Merchant, Bonnie Raitt, Chantal Kraviatsik, Diana Krall, Erica Badu, Lauren Hill, Missy Elliott, Queen Latifah, Sinead O'Connor, and the Dixie Chicks. So a who's who of yep. women in rock and music in the 90s. And the reason it ran was only three years is because that was sort of 1997 and 1998 was the height of these touring festivals in the 90s. You uh. had uh, Lollapalooza, Ozfest, uh, Edgefest, the Somersault Tour, um, Warped. You had all of these festivals, and there's probably a couple, uh, Dan's probably yelling at the phone, like, she forgot that. <laughs> But it was sort of the height. But then at sort of the 99, they all started to dwindle. Right. Uh, that was the last somersault. Edgefest stopped being a, a traveling to- tour at that time because they started to lose money. But also Woodstock, right. 98, 99 had happened with right. the whole like break stuff. And so the sort of that shift in the early, late 90s, early 2000s started to change. So they started to not be as... Profitable. profitable. And that's why you do it. You don't do yeah. these things for fun. No. They're a lot of work. Yes. 
uh, secondary acts who performed either on the second stage or in the village that followed the, the tour around included Dido, Pat Benatar, Martina McBride, Sixpence None the Richer, Adina Menzel, Nelly Furtado, and Tegan and Sarah. So some, some Tegan and Sarah. Yeah, so some earlier acts who are now big and that we yeah. know who started off on the secondary Stage headliners. Yeah. So it ended, like Andy said, um, after three tours when that festival culture was going away. It was revived in 2010, however, but it didn't experience the same level of success. And several dates ended up being canceled uh, and many performers backed out halfway through. So only about two thirds of the scheduled tour ran. Sarah McLaughlin attended every single one of them. So that must have been fucking exhausting, but she wasn't doing much else. So... (laughs) In 2011, McLaughlin indicated that the original model was being shelved due to changes in audience expectations. I think they're still doing smaller events every year, but... Yeah, I think it's sort of become a little bit more like Lollapalooza is now, where Lollapalooza is just one. Right. It's a set festival that happens in Chicago, certain dates. Right. So I think it's more like a stand, like a solo... Standalone. Festival. They're not traveling June through August anymore. Yeah. For all the fizzled out now, the legacy of the Lilith Fair were massive. Those performers were huge at the time. The initial success proved that there was a market for female-led events, and it stands as like a cultural touchstone for women in music in the 90s. So, Lilith Fair was the first one that came to mind to me, but when I started thinking it through, a bunch of other movements uh, popped up in my head, and... The ones I'm going to talk about now come in no particular order, have very little connective tissue between them. They're more current um, and currently active. But here are a bunch of other pro-women cultural events to know about slash pay attention to. And many of them, like I said, are current, so you can still get involved now. A lot of people have a pretty common misconception about models, and that's that they're dumb. It doesn't help that there was a reality show a few years ago about like America's Smartest Model or something like that, which... You can't see the shake my head. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> also, America's Next Top Model. I was just really. Yeah, I yeah. was just rewatching one of the later episodes, like later seasons, and there were some moments where I was just like, Ugh. <laughs> "You're not selling yourself on your intelligence here, lady." No, it's the looks. So I'm not saying that it's true of all of them, and I'm not saying that it's not true of some of them, but. It's definitely not true of the model Carly Kloss, a full-time runway model who started working in the fashion industry when she was 11. A few years ago, she met Kevin Seistrom at an event, and he's the founder of Instagram. And she realized that he had created an online platform that impacted millions of people on a daily basis and was really impressed and wanted to know more about it. Wanting to maybe do the same, or at least get a a better understanding of the process, Kloss signed up for a two-week coding boot camp through the Flatiron School in New York, where she was taught how to build web apps on the Ruby platform. Encouraged and inspired by her experience, the next year Kloss worked with the Flatiron School to set up a coding scholarship program for 21 girls in New York City. That has since morphed into a nationwide coding summer boot camp for girls. Her organization is called Code with Klossy, code with a K. Yep. <laughs> and its mission is to, quote, create learning experiences and opportunities for young women that increase their confidence and inspire them to pursue their passion in a technology driven world. So, in the summer of 2015, the year after Klossy's own course at Flat Iron School, more than 80 girls participated in three two week boot camps in LA, New York, and St. Louis. 
2017, there were 11 boot camps that were attended by more than 500 girls. And last year, the number of boot camps had grown to more than 50 and 1,000 girls participated. Each camp lasts two weeks and creates a long-term community of scholars, educators, and support people and alumni who are connected afterwards and provide support to one another. And this isn't an opportunity limited to the wealthy either. Each student, or scholar as the program calls them, they attend for free. A lunch is provided daily. The foundation can help the students get from their home to the campsite if they're in the same metropolitan area. And they also provide the students with a computer to use if they don't have a personal laptop. So it's really accessible to everyone from every social bracket. 100% of the camps are led by women. And in fact, there are two female instructors and two female instruction assistants for each camp. And the purpose behind that is to provide these girls with role models and representation in the technology world. That's a great ratio because you're actually going to be able to answer questions and... Yeah. Depending on your location and interest, uh, girls can attend camps that focus on either web web applications or mobile application development. And as we all know, getting girls into STEM is a challenge. So uh, the science and math studies, if you're not familiar with the term, systematically, they're often excluded. But following the camp experience, more than 84% of participants indicate that they have an increased interest in careers in STEM. And almost 90% of students report being more confident in their technical abilities after attending the camp. And I'm assuming the other 10% were already hella confident to start off with. So. Yeah. <laughs> No, that's I've heard of her coding with classy. Yeah. yeah. So the curriculum for each camp isn't simply coding related, though there's lots of hands on experiential learning opportunities, but it also brings in inspirational women working in tech as part of a speaker series. So to me, that's almost if not more valuable than learning how to do HTML, like having somebody talk to you about your experience is far more valuable. All camps end with a chance for scholars to show off their final project to their peers and instructors. And while girls are always welcome to come back the next year, if they do, the curriculum allows them to go deeper into the area of web applications. So they are building on previous year's experience. And I have one question, and that is, can 30-somethings apply? (laughs) (laughs) I would like to learn how to code. (laughs) So from Coding with Classy, we move on to the cultural movement of Black Girl Magic. Starting in 2015, a new conversation started trending on Twitter, and that conversation focuses on this concept of black girl magic. HuffPost defines it as, quote, a term used to illustrate the universal awesomeness of black women. It's about celebrating anything they deem particularly dope, inspiring, or mind-blowing about themselves. And yes, I edited that quote from the personal verbiage to a general verbiage since I'm not black. So, The term was coined by Kashan Thompson on Twitter. And if you want to follow her, her handle is at the PBG. So T-H-E-P-B-G. Talking to the LA Times about her hashtag, Thompson said, quote, I say magic because it's something that people don't always understand. Sometimes our accomplishments might seem to come out of thin air because a lot of times the only people supporting us are other black women. So in order to support her community, Thompson started using the hashtag black girls are magic back in 2013, but it took a couple years to gain momentum. As a joke for her friends, in 2013, Thompson created a handful of t-shirts with Black Girl Magic on it and some sparkles. It looks a bit like the old Bewitched um, logo. It's really cute. And she hoped to sell, like she did an initial production run and hoped to sell the remaining 30 just to make up her difference. And in fact, in her first production run, she ended up selling 300 of these t-shirts. 
The message was amplified by Willow Smith and Hunger Games star Amanda Steenberg, both young um, African-American uh, actresses who have huge Instagram followings, and they posted shots of themselves wearing the t-shirt on Instagram, and from there, just yeah. blew up. Now, if you search the term, you'll find tweets and Instagram photos for everything from celebrity news to friends just calling out the awesomeness of people in their own circle and celebrating each other. So, Woohoo! Yeah. Now we're going to get a little bit political, because it's me, and we're going to talk about the women's marches. So I don't know if you remember this, Andy, but in November 2016, uh, Americans elected a man with a terrible history of treatment to women to the highest office of the land. Yes. Uh, in favor of the most qualified presidential candidate in the history of American yes. politics, who was also a woman. That sounds familiar. You're yeah, aware? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the campaign and then the transition period made a lot of women very nervous about what their lives were going to be like and what the lives of women were going to be like with President Trash Monster in charge of one of the world's superpowers. And I was recently reading an article that the uh, rate of implantation of IUDs skyrocketed in the three months between election and inauguration, because women had a feeling that shit wasn't going to go well for them, and these IUDs last pass at least one term in office. Yeah. Also, they should... We don't, in in Canada or North America, use them as much. Yes. Like they aren't as... Com- but they really are one of the best. Yes. Um, especially for young women. Like, yes. There's a, I was reading an article. Oh, this is a diatribe, uh, an offshoot of this, but um, how... In Europe and some other places, when young women come in for birth control, when they're just like, you know, in your late teens and you're just yeah. starting to be sexually active, um, most kind of European countries, that is the default. Good. Whereas in North America, it's, it's the, pill. the pill. But the pill is... Oh, it's terrible for you. Terrible. It's not just terrible for you, but it's also like, you have to remember to take it. Yeah. Like what? I'm not even good at taking my antidepressants and I'm almost 40. <laughs> uh you know, so that you're depending on the 16 or 17 year old to get their shit together to take a medicine every day. Yeah. Which I cannot bother to do at 40, almost 40. Like, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was an interesting response. And now the, the longitudinal data is coming out about the rate of birth control implantations that wouldn't be affected by rollback on Medicaid and Planned Parenthood funding and all that. So it was an interesting little uh, article I was reading on that. In response to the terribleness of November 2016, an organization was formed to march on Washington the day after the inauguration to protest exactly what everyone saw coming, and that led to the first Women's March. Multiple co-marches were held around the world on the same day. Uh, There was one here in Ottawa that I wanted to go to, but I had a tutoring session that morning, so I couldn't go, and I was really, really bummed about that, but. But let's talk about the OG march that happened in Washington. It was the largest single-day protest in U.S. history. While there were 653 marches in the U.S. that day, one at least in every state, that drew about 3 million marchers, somewhere between 800,000 and 1.2 million participated in D.C. alone. So it's funny to look at the actual photos of the inauguration crowds and compare them to the Women's March crowds. Guess which one was bigger? Well, yeah. (laughs) At the DC event, there was a five-hour program that featured more than 100 speakers, artists, and musical performers. Logistically, the event organizers provided hundreds of porta-potties, medical tents, bike racks, charging stations, family reunification tents, and marshals to control the crowds. And this is an interesting fact that I found out. Accommodations for participants with disabilities were so robust and so well advertised in advance that the event ended up being the largest gathering of people with disabilities in history. 
Very cool. Yeah, very inclusive. The march was a one-day event, but it was also just the beginning. Organizers also encouraged participants and supporters to spend the first 100 days of the new administration, which is, is historically seen and understood to be the most important 100 days of a new president's term, to stay engaged with the political process and to keep advocating for women. So organizers encouraged people to send postcards to their senators with information about causes that are important to women and that were predicted to be rolled back. Future events were planned, like protests, town halls, and a women's strike. A reading list was assembled to help supporters learn more about key causes. Voter registration drives were encouraged. And efforts were made to engage in an intersectional way with other communities, particularly the Black, Latinx, and immigrant communities. Speaking of which, the March for Women organized a partnership with Essence Musical Festival in 2017. And that is Essence, if you're unfamiliar, is a huge cultural set piece in Black American culture. Uh, And the purpose of that was to expand brand awareness and to recruit additional Black female leaders into the cause. Using the original march as a springboard, organizers have put together a robust year-long program of activities that speak directly to their mission. And that mission um, has been fleshed out and developed uh, since 2017, and it is to, quote, harness the political power of diverse women and their communities to create transformative social change. Women's March is a woman-led movement providing intersectional education on a diverse range of issues and creating entry points for new grassroots activities and organizers to engage in their local communities through training, outreach programs, and events. Women's March is committed to dismantling systems of oppression through nonviolent resistance and building inclusive structures guided by self-determination, dignity, and respect. So the mission is quite a mouthful and quite all-encompassing. But it led to the development of a series of principles that guide the work of the organization, and these include ending violence, uh, protecting reproductive, LGBTQIA, workers, civil, disability, immigration rights, as well as environmental justice. So if you're a woman or a man who likes to support women, I highly recommend that you jump over to their website and see how you can get involved and or donate in their cause. What? Like, a lot of these causes need to almost use the, the the NRA is very popular, very mm-hmm. powerful because of the way it harnesses its people. Yep. But it also has a very singular mission. Yep. So like that is a really big mission. I look at some of those organizations and I go, that's very noble, but that's but, almost too much. Like, yeah. how are you going to action? Ju- like your, how are you going to funnel your people into, because you can't funnel them, right? Like that's yeah. so Reproductive rights, workers' rights, civil rights, disability rights, immigration rights, LGBTQIA rights, and environmental justice, and ending violence. It's a lot. It's a lot. Like, And it's all very noble, but then, to me, I think, even though you're a huge organization that probably has lots of people, unlike the NRA, which they they're, a lot of their core people are sort of older, so that they have time to show up at Capitol Hill to call. Yeah. So you have to figure out how to harness your probably more working mm-hmm. younger women who are in the workforce, how you can harness them. And usually it's by funneling a sp- you know, your specific mission at a specific time. So I don't know yeah. how they're doing it, but that seems to me a lot. Yeah. You know, not setting yourself up for... <laughs> for instant or robust success. Yes. Yes. Agreed. I think, yeah, it's all very noble causes, but focusing on... Like, originally it was the reproductive rights rights. issue, and, I mean, 
makes sense. They haven't had a whole lot of success with that in terms of the re- the rolling back of rights. Maybe that's what kind of forced them to branch out and look for areas that they could succeed in. I don't know. Yeah. But the... Good on them. Yeah, for sure. The Women's March kind of trips into this next cultural movement that I want to talk about, and that's the Years of Women. And I say years because 1992 was called the Year of the Women, and so was 2018. The Women's March was a direct result of the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The other big result of that is the fact that new records were set in terms of how many women were running for office in the 2018 midterm elections. And it's interesting because 1992 is almost an exact parallel to what we saw in 2018. So in 1992, American voters returned more new women to Congress than in any previous decade. Many women, including current Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, credits the Anita Hill hearings as the reason for that. So if you're not familiar, if you've been living under a rock for the last 12 months or so, during Clarice Thomas's confirmation hearing to the Supreme Court, Anita Hill, a former clerk of his, came forward with accusations of sexual harassment against her former boss. Much like we saw last year during the Kavanaugh hearings, the Senate decided to investigate these accusations and had Miss Hill testify to her claims before them. And the optics were terrible. It was a young black woman who sat before a panel that was completely male and mostly white and recounted her treatment at the hands of the Supreme Court nominee. And spoiler, she wasn't believed and he was confirmed. That event galvanized a lot of women to bring their voice into politics. And so they ran. That year, 11 women won major party nominations for Senate races, and 106 women ran for seats in the House. 24 women won elections to the House, and those women who were elected to the Senate tripled the number of women in that chamber. However, for context, that brought their number to six. There were now six women in the chamber, or 12%. (laughs) So good on ya. The numbers were terrible. But these broads kicked down a bunch of doors, since 47 of the 58 women of African, Hispanic, Asian, and Pacific descent to have served in Congress have been elected between 1992 and 2016. While the Anita Hill hearing is one of the major contributing factors to this rush of women, it wasn't the only one. There was an economic downturn that had started the year before. There were concerns that Reagan would push to overturn Roe v. Wade. And there was a push for redistricting, which created 93 open seats in the House of Representatives. It was the perfect storm, and women cleaned the fuck up after it. 2018 was similar in a lot of ways. So leading up to the midterms, women watched a mostly male Republican body throw mud at the victim of their Supreme Court nominee's sexual assaults. Spoilers, they didn't believe her, and he was confirmed. There were concerns that an increasingly right-wing executive branch was going to cause lasting damage to the rights of women and minorities, as well as the environment and international relations, etc., etc., etc. And a slew of scandals resulting from the Me Too movement uh, caused a bunch of elected officials, quite a few of them Republicans, to step down in the face of the outcome of that, and also out of embarrassment for the head of their party, which left a lot of open seats. And it's almost impossible to um, win over um, an incumbent in elections, but the fact that now there's two new people voting or two new people running, you're up your chances of getting in as a new time, as a first time running. There's a lot of people saying that they're not going to run the next time either, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So everyone seems to want to get out. They're jumping off the Titanic before they're out of lifeboats, I think. So enter the year of the new woman. Well, 1992 broke records, 2018 then came along and smashed them. In the midterms, 255 women ran for office, with Democratic women winning 47% of their races and claiming 93 seats, and Republican women winning 24% of their races, or 24 seats. So all told, when you even those out, 23% of women who ran won their election. The standout winners are names such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a self-described Democratic Socialist out of New York, Mickey Sherrill, a former naval helicopter pilot and ex-federal prosecutor from New Jersey, Deborah Halland, the first Native American congresswoman ever to sit in the House, elected out of New Mexico, and Chrissy Houlihan, an Air Force vet and entrepreneur from Pennsylvania. If history is any indication, and spoiler, it is, it's likely that these women and their colleagues will advocate for women to take on leadership roles at home and abroad, and they're also more likely to reach across the aisle to the other party to get shit done. It's just what women do. (laughs) So real quick, let's talk about a situation where two of these social movements joined to create something amazing. Harris County in Texas is one of the most diverse urban areas in the country. Yes, it is. Houston is there. Yes, it is. (laughs) Last year, voters decided to elect 17 black women to judgeships, bringing the total number in the county to a record 19. And these women referred to themselves as Harris County Black Magic. They posed for a badass photo that went viral during the campaign, and that photo has been serving as inspiration for the upcoming generations ever since. Well, they each stood for elections as individual. They, they did pool their resources and efforts to help with their each other's campaigns, and it clearly worked. So this is one case where the year of the women in black girl magic just came together in a perfect storm and got these women elected. I think it's bonkers that you elect judges, because I wouldn't know who would be a good judge as a non-legal mind, but um, the fact that the voters elected this incredibly representative and intersectional body to the court good on you texas yeah and we don't really usually say those things with bow texas but that is, <laughs> it is a very large area harris county yeah it's a huge amount of people yeah um and it's also like you said very diverse you've got yeah it's kind of an intro texas i find strangely fascinating yeah sort of like florida but not quite as stupid <laughs> right like yeah it's just it's a special breed it is a special breed yeah <laughs> So that is my story about um, pro-women cultural movements. Ooh. Let's meet some Lilith Fair. Yeah, <laughs> I this figured is... you would. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about that one thing we all hate, uh, is our periods. Ugh. So I'm sure that if anybody was looking, they saw that stupid post about how women only need nine tampons a cycle, so we should stop complaining about the cost of tampons. Yes. Uh, that's not how it works, people. No. You actually need way more because you can't wear one for more than 12 hours because then you are at risk of... Well, it's supposed to be eight. eight. Sorry, thank you, eight. <laughs> I, don't, I haven't used tampons in years. Um, I was going to say, this explains why Andy is, like, crazy. That toxic shock syndrome is just rocketing through her system. I have used a tampon in years. Um, and so, you know, you're not supposed to use have one in for more than eight hours... A, that's not even the amount of average uh, blood that a woman would discharge during her period. But anyway, 
And then um, we'll talk about the charity that I stumbled upon through Laney Gossip giving an award earlier in this week. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, the cat. Everybody came out to see me today, so yes, I'm a little bit more allergic <laughs> than I normally am. <laughs> so, your menstrual cycle is part of your body or a woman's body way of preparing a possible pregnancy each month. Yes. Yay! Fucking bitch. <laughs> Unlike, unless you're me and I have polycystic, so it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't. Yep. Uh, I used to be one of those very lucky people when I was on the pill for so long that you could li- like, okay, 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 it's Wednesday, uh, it's noon, my period's gonna start in about an hour. <laughs> like, you could set, like, my period would start around one or two. Oh, on a Wednesday, so and it would end about two on the Saturday. <laughs> like, but then, like, that's really lucky. But yep. I only realized after I came off the pill that it's because I have polycystic, so my body doesn't do anything normally. So it's uh, just the drugs. Oh, I see. Right. So I paid for that, like all those years of light periods. Yeah. Being able to know when they were happening, I paid for that in the, all the trouble I had to try to have my babies. Yep. Well, I tried to have my first baby. The second one just came. <laughs> along without knowing. I would just like to say, I told you so. I know. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, also trying to explain to a three-year-old what a period is is always a lot of fun. <laughs> she now thinks you bleed out of your bum because <laughs> I can't convince her otherwise. Menstruation is the term for getting your period. About once a month, females who have gone through puberty will experience menstrual bleeding. Mm-hmm. Yay. Fun times. It happens because the lining of the uterus has prepared itself for a baby by becoming thicker and richer in blood cells, blood vessels, and if pregnancy does not happen, it spring cleans that shit right out. There's an awesome meme of, like, a conversation between, like, a woman and her uterus, and it's like, the uterus is like, look, I've prepared the nursery for the new baby, and the woman's like, it's not going to happen this month. Wait, what? What do you mean? I've done all this work. Yeah, no, it's not going to happen. Uterus just rips everything down, throws it all out, burns everything, and then starts the whole process again the next month. (laughs) Uh, Bleeding usually lasts for three to eight days. Way longer if you're me right now. I want to know which bitch is on a three-day cycle. (laughs) I was at the very end of being on the pill for Well, yeah, because like you said, the pill. Yeah, a pill, and I don't, and I have polycystic, so... And I was also on the pill for, uh, like, 17 years. That's a long time. Yeah. Because I wasn't ready to have babies. And I'm smart. Well, I also was on it very early because of, well, now we know polycystic, but I had yeah. very frequent periods. So I'd have a period for, like, 16 days. Oof. And then it'd be, I'd be, it'd stop for four. And then I'd have another 16-day period. And then Oof. stop for four. Um, I was never anemic, though. Yeah, that's my problem. Yeah. Probably, they could never figure out why I wasn't anemic. I should have been anemic, but yeah. So I went on the pill way before I actually became sexually active just to... Regulate that. Regulate that shit. Because nobody wants... No. A 16, 20-day period and be off for four. No. No. Nobody got time for that shit. Uh, and the length of the time from the first day of one's period is... Well, the first day of your period is what's the first day of your cycle. And the average um, cycle... Last 21 to 35 days. Although if you're me, it's more like 60. Because <laughs> my body is a fucking mess. Uh, so the menstrual cycle is controlled by a complete orchestra of hormones produced by two structures in the brain, the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus, along with your ovaries. Mm-hmm. They all work in succinct bullshit to create this. 
So it includes several phases, and the exact timing, of course, is different for every woman. So your first day of your menstrual bleeding is considered day one of your cycle. Your period lasts from three to eight days, but five days is the average, and your bleeding is usually heaviest on the first two days. Okay. That's the average person. Day six to 14, uh, once the bleeding stops, the uterine lining uh, begins to prepare itself again for that possibility of pregnancy. The liner be- lining becomes thicker and enriched in blood and nutrients. That dumb bitch. Somewhere around day 14, an egg is released from one of the ovaries and begins its journey down the fallopian tubes to the uterus. <laughs> Fun fact, I only ovulate out of my right side. And then my left side will kick in once every three or four months, just to remind me. And I know this because ovulation for me feels like a little dude is standing in there with a spoon trying to dig out the egg. It fucking hurts. Doesn't happen all that naturally for me, so... Yeah. Yeah. My uh, ovaries are lazy. Lazy, lazy, <laughs> lazy bitches. Lots of drugs took to get them to start working. Uh, if sperm is present in the fallopian tubes at this time, fertilization can occur. In the fallopian tube or down in the uterus? Because if uh, it occurs in the fallopian tube, no, that's if it? it plants in the fallopian tubes. Uh, Usually, dissemination happens oh. in the fallopian tubes or just at the top. Right. So, like if you're doing so, um, IUI, which is not IVF, mm-hmm. and so there's a step. So I did ovulation induction, okay. which is where they gave me a lot of drugs to induce an ov- an egg to come out of my ovary. Mm-hmm. Just one. And I was on more drugs than some IVF patients. Yeah. Um, and then, so when you do IUI, they take the sperm, they kind of wash it <laughs> to help it along. And then they, so when they know that the drugs have kicked in and you have ovulated, mm-hmm. um, they inject the um, washed semen right up into the top of oh. the uterus. To give it like a boost. So that's usually if the, the sperm is also like not swimming well. Uh, so the so, old turkey baster method, if yes, you will. Yes, the turkey baster method, for sure. Uh, that was not, like if our ovulation induction hadn't worked, we would have went to IVF and not the other way because it was me not laying eggs. Right. Not the swimmers. Right. So. Pop, pop. <laughs> um, I probably still remembered by all of the... <laughs> as making the bok bok. They're like, yes, it worked. They're like, bok bok. They're like, I'm like, I laid an egg. Woo. Well, it cost me thousands of dollars. But, uh, in the case of fertilization, fertilized egg will travel down into the uterus and attempt to implant in the uterine wall. If the egg is not fertilized or implantation does not occur, hormonal changes signal the uterus to prepare to shed its lining and the egg breaks down and is shed along with the lining. So that bitch just cleans out house. Yep. And that's where the cramps come in. Yeah. So that is how you uh, how you bleed. So simply tracking your cycle with some details and symptoms can help you understand how your cycle works specifically. Um, and then you can sort of track. There's a lot of apps out there. Mm-hmm. Problem is that a lot of the apps aren't really that effective. Or they are effective, but they aren't really set up for a lot of, like, well differences. Yes. So that's it. It's If you vary from the norm, you're harder to find an app. And it depends on why you're tracking. Yeah. If you're just tracking to know when to expect Aunt Flo to come to town, then whatevs. If you're tracking to get pregnant, that's a harder thing to yes. dial in on. 
there's a lot of apps out there if you are trying if you're tracking to get pregnant that will like give you a few other data points so you can take your temperature you could it'll teach you how to look at your mucus fun times fun times uh i i the basic one is the fitbit i do use the fitbit one now i've told it to stop predicting when i'm gonna lay an egg good because uh, that's not my <laughs> problem anymore uh but it still is like so i kept having because i wasn't having a period i didn't have a period since christmas and so i kept having to go in like every other day and delete <laughs> the predicted period because right. i was like what do you mean <laughs> you should have one it's like absolutely taking like a fit so we all know that periods are really really expensive Yes. They can be. Yes. Especially if you have long or heavy. Um, if you don't want to have a baby, maybe go and look at some of the more... Long-term. Long-term. Like the IUD, for example. Yeah. It limits the flow and makes it very short and light. Actually, um, if you get one <clears throat> that has... If you can have the one that has a little bit of the hormone in it, it actually totally knocks it out. Yep. I know someone who has no period whatsoever with hers lucky yeah <laughs> how much do canadian women actually spend on tampons and pads each year hmm. so chatelaine chatelaine in 2007 did sort of an article on this and they talked about the majority of canadians think that menstrual supplies should be subsidized in certain instances okay so it's not like every woman but it's sort of like the idea of you if you go into a public bathroom you don't pay for toilet paper so, like, public bathrooms and schools, community centers, that tampons should be... You shouldn't have to pay for them, and the machines should have to be... Free. Okay. I Filled. Uh, so that you're that. not like, ah, fuck. And then yeah. you've got to go, do you have a pad? Can I borrow a pad? Do you have a tampon? Like, yeah. that embarrassing... Yeah. Um, so... Sorry, let me come back to my... So... They surveyed uh, 1,500 Canadians and found that 65% think government should subsidize feminine hygiene products. Um, and I said that in that sort of way of having them available uh, in public spaces, uh, yep. shelters, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that problem, too. Uh, so according to CanadianMenstrators.ca, <laughs> a Canadian campaign that fought for period tax fairness... Which actually, there's no GST on feminine products. Oh, there's not? Yeah, that oh, hasn't been around since 2014, I think. Good. Um, they estimate that 17, a little over 17 million Canadian women between the age of 12 and 49 spent an estimated $500 million on menstruating, menstrual hygiene products Jesus. a year. But that just works out to just over $29 per woman per year. And we all know that that's not... Yeah, that's... But that, I mean, that's an average over all of these women, and not all of these women will menstruate. Not all of these women... Some of these women will be pregnant. Some of these women will be breastfeeding. Some of these women will have... Okay, so let's knock the number in half are menstruating. That's still only $60 a year. So... I call BS. So, but as a menstruating woman, that amount sounds awfully low. Yeah. So according to estimates made by the Huffington Post, the average woman uses five liners or pads, depending on a personal preference, 20 tampons per cycle if she's changing her tampon every six hours and menstruating for five days. Wait, they're saying one pad a day? 
Well, if you're using tampons. So one liner, right? Liner. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. Uh, And 20 tampons per cycle. If that person is changing their tampon every six hours and menstruating for five days. Okay. Um, at walmart.com, you can buy a jumbo pack of 54 regular tam- tampons for $9.98 and a pack of 18 pads for $3.98. Of course, that doesn't include any taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 20 tampons plus 12 periods, 240 tampons per year. That's $4.44 a box, which will round up to five boxes. So that's $49.90 annually on tampons. Uh, five pads times 12 periods, 60 pads per year, blah, blah, blah. That's $15.94 annually on panty liners. Yep. I think those of us who use pads probably spend a bit more. more. Yeah. Um, I use tampons. I just can't anymore. Uh, so that an average woman is spending about $65 per woman before tax. Per year. Per year. So that doesn't sound like a lot. So I'm sure someone's going, well, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it doesn't sound like a lot because we're both employed full time. So there are a lot of people who just don't have access to this. So since the two years, since feminine hygiene products became GST free, joining the ranks of such other GST free essential items, such as cocktail cherries, wedding cakes, and breakfast cereals. (sighs) I feel like there's a man involved with some of those decisions somewhere. But cocktail cherries? Who That's lobbied the most for? Who lobbied for cocktail cherries? The man GST. who loved a good Manhattan after work. Oh, good lord! <laughs> Manhattan or old fashioned, whichever one. One of them involves a cherry. So, but it seemed to uh, removing the tampon tax was not enough, according to their survey. A lot of those people. I felt that governments should subsidize feminine hygiene products um, in that sort of way of public access. Because, again, they're not subsidizing our personal toilet paper use. But, yeah, again, we don't have to pay a penny to go pee in public. Right. It's not Europe, for God's sake. (laughs) (laughs) The reason is not necessarily be that the average Canadian woman can't afford that $65, $70 a year is the... For homeless women, women on welfare, and other low-income groups, access to feminine hygiene products is a serious problem. Yeah. So if you guys are listening and you're thinking of donating things to your local food bank or your local shelter, one of the things they do not get and they always need is feminine hygiene products. Yeah. So the next time you're dropping something into your local food bank's box, baby food is always very popular and feminine hygiene products. So the next time you drop something into the food bank box, pick up something that can go into a lady's box. Yeah. <laughs> I like how, like, you were going to co-sign on that, and then it took you a second for it to land, and you're like, oh. <laughs> I love that. In uh, July of 2016, New York City made history for passing the United States' first legislative package to ensure access to menstrual products in public schools, shelters, and correctional facilities. So, yes. If you are in one of those three places, you can have access to feminine products. For free. For free. The whole um, being in jail and not getting free menstrual products blows my mind. Like, if it was me, I'd be like, welcome to free lead, ladies. This is happening. I'm not paying commissary for this. Rubbing up against a leg of a... Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Does, as Mayor as Mayor Bill de Blasso said in a release, these laws recognize that feminine hygiene products are a necessity and not a luxury. Yep. Which is very true. So we'll get to how the other way to how I fell down this rabbit hole. It's a very short rabbit hole. <laughs> but is there is a group that Nicole White um, started in Canada and it's called Moon Time Sisters. So they have a branch in Saskatchewan and Toronto. It's still a small group. Um, and so she, like most women, knows how embarrassing it can be when your period comes and there's no tampons or pads around. Yeah. We've all been there. Yep. The anxiety that bleeding through your clothes or deciding like a wad of toilet paper will do for now. Uh, pro is, tip, it doesn't. It, I know it doesn't. <laughs> it's a feeling that we all know. Yep. And it's very uncomfortable. But for some Indigenous women, it's not a fear. It's a monthly crisis. Yeah. Especially women living up north. These things can cost, so we just talked about, like, that costs $69 or $65 for the average Canadian. And that box of 40 tampons cost $9 on mm-hmm. walmart.ca for us. That, in places like Iqaluit uh, and north of the Arctic Circle, is either fourteen ninety nine or almost $20 a box. Yep. So that is double the cost. So then your $65 period now becomes... 130 Yeah. And that's on top of the $7 you're paying for a head of lettuce, the $18 yes. you're paying for a gallon of orange juice. It's a ridiculous crisis happening up there. Yes. Who wants to say that I don't have the money for pads, but I don't, and I don't want a big wad of toilet paper in my underpants? Yeah. So we all know those stories, and I'm sure for many of us, we've all been there, but these women are there every month. So that's why White started moon time sisters a community-based group that collects feminine hygiene donations to distribute through saskatchewan's northern community as i said there's also a branch in toronto Mm -hmm. Uh, as a community organizer she often works she's also uh indigenous she's metis um she often works with people who live below their lives below the poverty line and that she said that she knows feminine products are considered a luxury but there's something tangible that we can all work on together because they're not a luxury people they're a necessity yeah if yeah like nobody wants to free bleed that is uncomfortable if you are a guy and not sure what we're talking about go to buzzfeed and just search free free bleed bleed. and they did uh two or three of their female staffers did a sort of free bleed experiment and they talk about how uncomfortable and how they can't believe that women have to do this yeah. all the time because they like, cannot afford. And in the States, it's different than Canada because in the States, their welfare system is predominantly on sp- some places in food stamps. Yeah. And feminine hygiene products are not qualified ah! in some places for food stamps. Ugh. So you cannot use your food stamps. Whereas here, welfare is like a check and you... You decide how you spend you it. You decide how you spend it. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that if menstruation was a male issue... This wouldn't be a conversation. No, but I, I'm not even sure that I could say that without a hundred percent. Like, yes, I think it probably wouldn't be the same conversation. Assuming but... all things are equal as they are today, with the only exception being men bled, this would like boner pills are. Look at what happened there. Like, <laughs> you can get complete coverage for your Viagra, whereas sometimes the fertility drugs or birth control isn't covered. Fertility drugs usually aren't, and uh, they're very expensive. Yeah. 
So what they're finding is that in these places, like we hear about it in third world countries where women and and girls have to stay home from school because they don't have access to feminine products. But that's happening here. That's happening in Canada. That's happening in the States because these women just don't have the access to that. So they have to stay home. Yeah. And that's atrocious. That limits a girl's ability to go to school one week a month. Yes. That's a huge learning gap. Yes. Yeah. And I also think it's appalling that some of these people don't have access to free water or good water. But like that, that to me doesn't track. Doesn't track. Like North how, American. Yeah. How can this this happen? How can we let this happen? So, um, it's not a tirade against men in any way. This is she leaves that to me most of the time. <laughs> but it's just it, this is something that we should be talking about more because we like the stigma around a period because we all think it's ucky and gross. We don't want to talk about it. Um, limits these young world women from discussing it. It w- limits us from discussing it. It limits us from saying, hey, there's this awesome charity. What do they do? They collect pets. Yep. And they send them to girls and women in northern communities. They send them to girls and women in third world countries. They yep. send them to rural um, states. Like, yep. But because we don't want to talk about periods, because periods are icky. Yeah, they're gross. They're yep. disgusting. I'm on one right now. Yeah. But... Motherfucker, I'm on it all the time. So I've tried to explain to Elizabeth and Victoria what a period is because I don't want them to grow up being like, ooh, it's, we can't right. talk about it. So I go around now. I don't tuck my pad up in my sleeve. A, I, we work in a, I work in an office of all, all women, women with the exception of one gentleman who we've just accepted into the sisterhood. <laughs> Which is chagrin. Um, if he's listening, I'm really sorry, but you are. Like... <laughs> I mean, if you want to be everyone's best friend in that office, just keep a packet of pads and tampons in your desk and just be like, I got you covered, ladies. Yeah. And they'll love you even more than they do now. Yeah. <laughs> I am the keeper of all the Advil and Tylenol. Yeah. I always have Advil and Tylenol on my desk. But it is it is true. Like, I've been thinking in the last couple of years, like, I need to stop being embarrassed about my period. And I think we all do, because if you look around the workplace, odds are at any given time, probably a quarter of the women that you work with are on their period, unless it's a small close office and you're synced up and then heaven help you that week. We used to be very synced up. Yes. But like, if you look around, you don't know that. We have been trained since we were, since our first period that this is a private thing. It is... I don't want to say shameful, but it's gross and icky, and there's a certain amount of shame that comes with that. Yeah. So it doesn't matter that it feels like your uterus is trying to wring itself out like a sponge. You have to go about your day as if it's just a regular old day. Yeah. You could be fucking dying at your desk, and I have had those days, but you still have to get up and walk to the next meeting or make that phone call and not sound yeah. like you want to be crying. Like... To me, that's that's the real damage that we've done to ourselves is our ability to hide yep. discomfort just to paper over something. Like with this, so before my period started finally, I was very excited. Now it's like never wants to fucking leave, like that house guest that you're really excited to see and then never leaves. Yeah. I'm like, I had really bad cramps and I normally don't get a lot of cramps. I'm very lucky that way. Um, I normally get diarrhea. Yay. Yep. Period poops. Serious. Same same uh, hormones. Yep. Um, and I was in at work and I was talking to my boss and I just started to be like, whoo. Yeah. She's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I got cramps. Yeah. So I haven't had a period in almost three months. So I'm very excited that hopefully I'll get one so I don't have to go to the doctor yep. to talk about the fact that I haven't had one in three months. 
And there was this like, oh, oh, yeah, that's awful. Like, I hope you get it too. And the next day, that yeah. person stopped in and was like, did you get it yet? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> like, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> so it's, I'm finding that even just talking about it. Yeah. Like, and then that person was like, oh, you know, I remember what cramps were like. I haven't had them in a long, long time. Yeah. But I remember what that was like. So it's like sort of like, I think the more you talk about it, the more, and I, I'm, I don't give a shit. I'll talk about this sort of stuff. Like right. I talked about my uh, fertility issues pretty openly. Yeah. Like I didn't care. Like that's what I was going through. I think more people should talk about it because it's, then it's less like oh, stigmatized. Yeah. But also like I was taking off a lot of time or, you know, coming in a little late because I had to have. At one point, I was getting blood work every day. Yeah. So I also looked a little bit like a heroin addict. So yeah. I had to sort of make sure that everybody knew I wasn't a heroin yeah. addict. I'm not shooting up. <laughs> it's coming out, not in. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, this stigma stops people from discussing it and stops people from going, hey, this is a problem. Um, so they talk about, like, as you said, food is also twice as expensive uh, in north. northern communities yeah. as it is in the south. So you have people who make less money. So um, the average cost of groceries for a month in some of these northern communities is $1,909 compared to, say, a similar list of food at 847 in Toronto. And But some of that is, some of the stuff isn't available or, like, your milk, your fresh produce could be, like, astronomically more expensive yeah. because it has to be brought in. Smaller shipments, stuff like this. Fun fact... Um, the business school that I work for, for a couple of undergrad students as a business product um, have pioneered a company called Grocer, where they take those shipping containers and turn them into greenhouses. Oh. And so they are eminently movable. You can transport them anywhere that you can get a shipping container. And that's the problem with the expense of food up there is it comes up on the shipping containers. So the yep. cost. Um, it's all kitted out to grow food like fresh produce it's all self-contained it's relatively cheap they were just on dragon's den and got an offer for um a partnership but they declined it because they're getting so many offers for partnership with better deals from outside nice. companies and they're expanding into norway because norway has a similar product problem with uh, produce in communities up uh, by the arctic circle so if you would like to know more go check out grocer g-r-o-w-e-r-c-e-r and you can follow that story. These are young kids too, like 20s, early 20s, who are pioneering a solution to the food crisis up in poor communities. That's awesome. Because yep. it is... Oh, anyway, now, if sorry. only we can figure out how to plant a tampon tree, we'll be fine. So Moontime Sisters, as I said, is this really cool group. So one of their main uh, charitable partnerships is kits for a cause which is a canadian company so they started out as part of a wholesale company so this oh. is a wholesale company that sells to charities at like at like cost, at cost yeah but now cool. they've started this other group as part of their company that's kits for a cause so lots of groups work with them to create these like menstrual kits um they do back to school kits they do um, if there's a kit that you could think about that they could do for a charity, they assemble them. So they mm. do uh, patient care kits, back to school kits, hygiene kits, men's shelter kits, women's shelter kits. So with bras and underwear and socks, you know, cancer care kits, kidney dialysis kits. Wow. Disaster relief kits. Um, feminine hygiene empowerment kits. 
so that uh, through this charity wing, other charities can sort of piggyback on their success and their networks. Cool. So Moontime Sisters is one of the charities that works with them. So if you are interested in these things, look at, there's lots of charities around in your local communities and nationally that do this sort of work. Mm-hmm. Um, donate, get involved, because we all, all women know what that is like and know that it is not a luxury. And some of us can't imagine not being able to afford it because we just buy it and it just is something we have to have. Yeah. But it's something we have to have, but not all women can't afford it. So, yes. Periods suck. Let's try to make it a little easier for our fellow sisters who are having an even suckier time. Yeah. Do you know the history of the tampon? No, I do not. Oh, it was good thing your historian friend does. So, yes. Uh, during the World Wars, the, of course, badass war nurses were patching bullet holes with these little cotton, rolled up cotton plugs. And then one of them said, fuck. My period is terrible in this war time situation. What can I do? Oh, look, this little rolled up plug of cotton is great for stopping blood in bullet holes. Maybe it'll stop the blood coming from my vag hole. And whoop, the tampon was born. Fucking war nurses doing it. All of it. Every single time. (laughs) I love war nurses. And also, do you know the history of the battle between tampons and pads? No. So... It's considered, like... Now I have this, like, cartoon version of, like... It's, like, spy versus spy of, like, yeah. <laughs> or, like, a gladiator-style, like, <laughs> battle. Yeah, like, so they just clash. Yeah. So there's this mythos that real women wear tampons, right? Like, you become a woman when you're able to insert a tampon and go about your day with one in. Like, there's that bullshit myth behind that. That started in the 80s when they started advertising... Um, menstrual products on television and in order to draw people into this cold like tampon culture they started showing off how active you could be while wearing a tampon versus a pad and so they would use images like high-powered businesswomen with shoulder pads and briefcases and um, badass women doing physical activity and so they were trying to drum up business in the tampon market And so what it did is created this narrative that real women who are active and who do busy, important things wear tampons, and then no one's really advertising for pads. And if they do, it's all like blue liquid being poured on a tap. Like, so it created this dichotomy of like real important business women wear tampons. Everyone else wears pads. In reality, diapers for adults. adults. And in reality, it's just a comfort level thing. Like you do whatever works for you because you just, you don't want to make it worse. Yeah. So that's why, like, we have to destigmatize pads for grown women. I don't like tampons. I don't like walking around with something inside me for six hours a day. So we need to start destigmatizing that as well. Don't feel pushed into putting anything in your body that you don't want to. I used to use tampons all the time. And then um, after Victoria, um, I ended up with a bit of vaginismus and also a bit of scar tissue Mm. from her, the few stitches I had with her. Not the bunch of stitches I had with fucking Elizabeth, but just the few stitches I had with Victoria. And uh, so I haven't really tried using them since because they were very uncomfortable the first few times. But my first time was my last time. Oh, no. So I'm still like traumatized from that whole experience. And I'm just like, I'm good. (laughs) The concept of walking around with something up in me for that long, like. 
Well, um, a, f- a friend uh, was asking me about, because I've had vaginismus, which is like when... It hurts to put anything in. Yes. Yes. So you can't have sex, you can't do anything. And I had it for a number of years, and uh, to get it treated is very painful physiotherapy, but it works. Um, and so their daughter was trying to put in a tampon and couldn't because yep. it was extremely painful. And they went to the doctor and they discovered that she has like a very mild form of vaginismus, oh. but they're actually going to get it treated. Oh, good. So, you know, sometimes that like, hey, if it, if you are a teenager and you're listening to this for some reason <laughs> um, and you're like, I can't do it because it pains her hurt so much. Yes. Talk to your doctor about it. Yes. Because it shouldn't, it should be, it, it might be uncomfortable for you and that's like totally your own, but it shouldn't be like, oh my God, this hurts. What's yes. going on? Also, fun fact, you are not going to take anything to your doctor that they haven't heard or studied or are prepared to hear. Yeah. And you know what? If you do walk in with something that they've never seen, heard, or are prepared to talk about, you might get into a medical journal. It's a win-win. Yeah. (laughs) So talk to your doctor. Yeah. Because they can help. And things like vaginismus are talked about and diagnosed much more than they used to be. Yes. Which is a good thing for women who enjoy sex. Yes. (laughs) Because it makes... Getting it treated makes your life so much better. Yes. So that is our episode for this week. The end of our uh, pro-women. Well, we're always going to be pro-women, but the intense focus for these episodes. The positive focus. The positive focus. Like I said uh, last week and next week, I'm coming in guns blazing with creepy, gross. I haven't decided yet, but I got a list of less positive things that I'm going to pull from. (laughs) Oh, great. Still no sex, though. <laughs> I thought Ma- March was your, like, aggressive positivity month. I'm trying to practice aggressive positivity all the time. But, like, this is a lot. So um, I need a break. <laughs> hey, I have until March 21st. Then I can talk about sex after that. No, you have until it's spring. It is still fucking terrible out there. First day of spring is March 22nd. No, 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 no. (laughs) Oh, boy. I think I'm going to pocket an episode, like notes for an episode about uh, Victorians and Puritans. So that when you bust out the sex, I'm going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) We're going to start talking about what caused this repressive behavior in me. (laughs) Well... Everybody, if you want to reach us, you can find us on our website at www.rabbitholespodcast.com. On there, you can find the merch tab, which uh, links to our Redbubble store, as well as the support tab, where uh, we'll bring you to our Patreon page, and you can see our levels. Please support us, give us some shekels, and see some of the cool stuff that we do behind the scenes, as well as some of the clips that land on the cutting room floor that are quite funny. Mm-hmm. You can also find us now on Spotify. You can rate and give us a review on iTunes and Stitcher, and I think maybe Spotify. You can find us on Google. You can find us pretty much everywhere now that you can find a podcast. Yes. Um, We are omnipresent. Somebody uh, is listening to us via Pocket Cast regularly. I don't know what that is, but thank you. (laughs) Wherever you are, thank you for enjoying an obscure listening podcast. I see the numbers in our analytics of like one person a week, one or two people a week. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, If you want to reach out to us via social media, we have our Twitter account is at rabbit holes pod. Instagram is at rabbit holes podcast and Facebook is the rabbit holes podcast page. 
Andy's curating the Instagram Facebook of it all. So there's awesome content every day that relates to the show. Hopefully it'll wet your whistle and you'll dive into the episode. Uh, also take a minute to recommend us to family, friends, passing strangers, uh, local politicians, you know, whoever's just people you talk to day to day because yep. that's how word about the show gets out. Yes. So pimp us out people. We can't do it all alone, <laughs> though we try. We do. So there's only one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.